0: Well, today we go through Hosea and Micah. These are really two of my favorite books in the Old Testament. And as you can look here on our chart, once again, just to see kind of where we're at, we're going to finish up on the book of Isaiah. We really need two weeks. Well, we need about 10 weeks to do Isaiah, but we're going to to try to do Isaiah in two weeks here over the next two uh, Bible studies. And so again, just to kind of appreciate... Where we're at, we talked about the splitting of the kingdoms here that occurred in 931 B.C. And we have all of this chaos as things get worse and worse. And we have all these prophets that are sent, surprisingly, to the bad nation of Israel. So you can see there that Hosea was sent to Israel. And Micah really had a message for both Judah and Israel, as did Isaiah. Okay, in 722, the time you have down there at the bottom of the table, this is when we have the... um, Assyrian captivity, and the 10 northern tribes are taken off into captivity, never to be heard from again. So these prophets, um, and it's unfortunate we have a break, really, because we could make uh, such an interesting case about the interesting lives of these prophets. It is not easy being a prophet. Now, how would you uh, feel if this was the first message? God had never communicated to you in any uh, special form, and here's the first message you get. When the Lord first began speaking to Israel through Hosea, some versions say the first time God spoke to Hosea, he said to him, go and marry a prostitute so that some of her children will be conceived in prostitution. If you had that message in the middle of the night, uh, would you assume it was God talking with you? Go and marry a prostitute. Well, that's the message that Hosea got. And what about Micah? To show my sorrow, I will walk around barefoot and naked. I will howl like a jackal and wail like an ostrich. We'll read about Ezekiel and how he laid on his side for a very long, over a year. And then he had to turn and lay on the other side. Isaiah, sawed in half in a hollow log. Jeremiah, stoned to death in Egypt. I mean, these people who gave a message for God, it was under great, great hardship. And so just to kind of recreate the setting again, I want to just describe the people because it helps us to understand the message that Micah and Hosea had. So this uh, we're going to go back and forth between Micah and Hosea. These two books are very similar in terms of the message. So just a little bit about the people in Micah 1. All its precious idols will be smashed to pieces. Everything given to its temple prostitutes will be destroyed by fire, and all its images will become a desolate heap Samaria, which is the capital of Israel, acquired these things for its fertility rights, and now her enemies will carry them off for temple prostitutes elsewhere. Samaria's wounds cannot be healed. And I want you just to imagine that your church experience every week is meeting a temple prostitute, that you go to church expecting to have uh, an interaction with a temple prostitute, and that is an important part of the religion. What does that do to you as a person? Okay, and so this really was going on. Part of the fertility rites felt to be important. God will bless them if they do these things. Uh, But they became very uh, debased because of it. But as we'll see all the way through, these were not uh, atheists. These were very religious people. That's kind of the scary thing uh, about what was going on. They, They believed in God. They were really trying. For example, in Hosea 5, they take their sheep and cattle to offer as sacrifices to the Lord. But it does them no good. They cannot find him, for he has left them. And we'll go into why God left them uh, in a little more detail here later on. But they were religious people. The Lord says, Sound the alarm. Enemies are swooping down on my land like eagles. My people have broken the covenant I made with them and have rebelled against my teaching, even though they call me their God and claim that they are my people and that they know me. They have rejected what is good Because of this, their enemies will pursue them." Just all the way through human history, we have people calling God by the right name, claiming to worship the true God, but yet by their actions proving precisely the opposite. Of course, Jesus came, who did he come to? His own people who were reading the Old Testament, who were going to church, who were tithing, who were doing all of the right things, many of them externally. Jesus came to his own people who claimed to be, you know, our God is the God of Abraham. The real God shows up and they hated him. Okay, so just calling God by the right name, there's much more to it than that. We have to know him. In Hosea 7, they are doomed. They have left me and rebelled against me. They will be destroyed. I wanted to save them, but their worship of me was false. Why was their worship of God false? Because they didn't know what God was like. They have not prayed to me sincerely, but instead they throw themselves down and wail as the heathen do. When they pray for grain and wine, they gash themselves like pagans. What rebels they are. Doesn't this just remind you of the prophets of Baal? Remember, uh, Elijah called them, and they were dancing around, gashing themselves. And why is false religion often involved in this kind of behavior? Wailing, gashing yourselves, it's because the gods are angry, right? Gods always need to be appeased in idolatry. That's why uh, the self-mutilation, child sacrifice, the hallmark feature of idolatry all the way through is appeasement of an angry God. It is the complete opposite to the, the true God and the true picture of what God is trying to present. Their worship of God was false. They thought he needed to be appeased. And so we made this point earlier, but it just comes out so clearly in these books. It is a rule that we become like the God we love, worship, and admire. That's why it is so critical that we love, worship, and admire the true God, and we have a true understanding of his character. There are dozens of verses on this, but since we're in Hosea, here's one. The Lord says, When I first found Israel, it was like finding grapes growing in the desert. When I first saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the first ripe figs of the season. But when they came to Mount Peor, they began to worship Baal and soon became as disgusting as the gods they loved. We saw that in Solomon, right? When he was worshiping the true God, he was brilliant. He did wonderful things. I mean, it was a wonderful time. When he began burning his children in the fire to a God that doesn't exist, what happened to Solomon? We become like the God we love, worship, and admire. And in 2 Kings, describing this same time historically, They worshipped worthless idols and became worthless themselves. Paul really goes into this in, in Romans as well. We become like the God we love, worship, and admire. Okay, but again, notice what they were doing. Religious people really trying. And God would describe it this way The more altars the people of Israel build for removing sin, the more places they have for sinning. I write down countless teachings for the people, but they reject them as strange and foreign they offer sacrifices to me and eat the meat of the sacrifices. Wouldn't that be good? But I, the Lord, am not pleased with them. And now I will remember their sin and punish them for it. I will send them back to Egypt. So again, there is a... uh, I mean, these people are feeling the same thing that people all through history have felt, and that is the guilt and self-condemnation that is associated with sin. They're building lots of altars for removing sin. They're offering sacrifices to try to remove sin. Okay, but they don't know God. And so this ties so much into our own uh, understanding of what really happened at the cross, which is something, obviously, when we get into the New Testament next year, we'll talk about in detail. How do we see the cross? How is sin removed at the cross? Is God being appeased at the cross? Uh, So many important questions, and we have to make sure we are in no way carrying with us any remnants of idolatry and paganism, even as we view the cross. Now, probably the most famous verse quote out of both of these two books here is found in Micah 6. I think I've quoted this at least twice since we've been together. Very beautiful. Micah would say, What shall I bring to the Lord, the God of heaven, when I come to worship him? Shall I bring in the best calves to burn his offerings to him? Will the Lord be pleased if I bring him thousands of sheep or endless streams of olive oil? Shall I offer him my firstborn child to pay for my sins? This is a serious question. This is what was going on. This is, uh, to us, it sounds ridiculous, maybe just uh, fancy poetry. No, this is a real question. Should we? Should we offer our firstborn children to pay for our sins? No. The Lord has told us what is good. What he requires of us is this, to do what is just or right, to show constant love and to live in humble fellowship with our God. That's what God has always wanted. That's why Jesus came, actually, is to bring us into humble fellowship with our God. He came that we might experience his constant love. So the fundamental problem, as we've said, is they do not know God. Hosea makes this so clear. And I want to read this in a couple different versions. In the NIV, Hosea 4.6, my people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. Okay, what knowledge would that be? They don't know enough uh, math or they don't know enough uh, historical details. What knowledge? Because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you as my priests. Okay, let's read this in, uh, in another version here. I think it becomes clear in the New Living Translation. Hear the word of the Lord, O people of Israel. The Lord has filed a lawsuit against you, saying there is no faithfulness, no kindness, no knowledge of God, no knowledge of a person in your land. My people are being destroyed because they don't know me. And remember, to know in the Bible, Adam knew Eve, and that described an intimacy, a relationship. It's all your fault, you priests, for you yourselves refuse to know me. Now I refuse to recognize you as my priests. Since you have forgotten the laws of your God, I will forget to bless your children. The more priests there are, the more they sin against me. They have exchanged the glory of God, the character of God for the disgrace of idols. It's such a theme that runs through every book, which I hope has come out strongly in this Bible study, which is ultimate, the pinnacle of everything, is to know God and not detached, impersonal, relational. And just to pick up on a few of these, of course, when God comes back, people that don't enter heaven, what does he say? Go away, I never knew you. Of course, he knows everything about them, right? But it's in the biblical sense to know. We don't have a relationship. We're not friends. Back to Hosea in chapter 6, the people say, let's return to the Lord. He has hurt us, but he will be sure to heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage our wounds, won't he? In two or three days, he will revive us and we will live in his presence. Let us try to know the Lord. He will come to us as surely as the day dawns, as surely as the spring rains fall upon the earth. But the Lord says, Israel and Judah, what I am going to do, what am I going to do with you? Your love for me disappears as quickly as the morning mist. It is like dew that vanishes early in the day. That is why I have sent my prophets to you with my message of judgment and destruction. What I want from you is plain and clear. And this is what God wants from us. It's plain and clear what he wants. Here it is. I want your constant love, not your animal sacrifices. I would rather have my people know me than burn offerings to me. And this last underlined part, it's, it's so significant. This is called Hebrew poetry or Hebrew parallelism which is not based on rhyme, but on repetition. Okay, so look at the, just read the last uh, sentence there again. I want your constant love, not your animal sacrifices. That's the first line. And notice the parallel in the second line. I would rather have my people know me than burn offerings to me. So constant love goes with knowing God. Animal sacrifices goes with burning offerings. So the second line adds meaning to the first line. And it's real significant here that we associate knowing God with experiencing his constant love, okay? And I think it's it's very much exactly describing what it is. What's the new earth all about? Here's the description of the new earth. On Zion, God's sacred hill, there will be nothing harmful or evil. The land will be as full of knowledge of the Lord as the seas are full of water. That's the great experience. We're with God. We're in an intimate relationship with God. We know His character in the new earth. And in Psalms 36, again, this constant love and knowing God, we we associate them together. How precious, O God, is Your constant love. And David goes on to describe it here. We find protection under the shadow of Your wings. We feast on the abundant food You provide. You let us drink from the river of Your goodness. You are the source of all life, and because of Your light, we see the light. Continue to love those who know you and do good to those who are righteous. To know God is to experience his constant love. It's a relationship. And of course, most famous of all, Jesus described why he came. This was the night before he died. And he said, an eternal life means to know you. Eternal life is not about how long it lasts. That's a given. Eternal life is about a relationship with a person. And how do we know that person? It's through Jesus Christ. That's why he came. And so uh, Paul and John just put this together so well. I love this verse in 1 John 5 about knowing God. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. And I wish I didn't continue the verse here, but just think, how would you answer the question? Why did Jesus come? What understanding did he come to bring us? We just read on. So that we know the true God. He came that we might know what God is like. We live in union with the true God, in union with his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God. Who's the true God? Jesus. And this is eternal life. Again, eternal life described not in terms of how long it lasts, but in terms of the experience of eternal life. And if if eternal life is a relationship with a person, then it really begins today, not uh, at some future time. Okay, this was everything to Paul as well in Philippians 3. I reckon everything as complete loss for the sake of what is so much more valuable. Okay, What is so much more valuable? The knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Again, to know God. It's in that biblical sense. For his sake I've thrown everything away. I consider it all as mere garbage so that I may, might gain Christ and become completely united at one with him. Okay, and last verse on this in Ephesians. What's the function of the Holy Spirit? Paul would say, I have not stopped giving thanks to God for you. I remember you in my prayers and ask the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, to give you the Spirit who will make you wise and reveal God to you so that you will know him. Every effort of heaven is focused on this one thing that we are brought into unity and relationship with God. So this is the problem. This is the setting of what was going on during the time of Hosea and Micah. So the problem is the whole Old Testament is against the backdrop of us being stubborn mules. This is why we have such loud shouting. Uh, I mean, and as a parent, I appreciate this so much. You know, just so many things happen where you end up talking sometimes in ways, boy, it's the only way to get their attention. I mean, if your kids are playing by a rattlesnake, would you only call out with loving words? You know, they don't listen. They think you're just meddling in their play. Would you shout? Would you even threaten? Could it be the loving thing to do sometimes to threaten if your kids are playing by a rattlesnake? And so when we have a, a backdrop of such rebellion going on in the Old Testament, man, God has to shake mountains. He has to do all kinds of things. But it's the loving, most loving thing to do. And so my favorite verse of all on this theme is in Hosea. The people of Israel are as stubborn as mules. How can I feed them like lambs in a meadow? Okay, God would always like to talk like he did when he gave the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek. Okay, that's the way he wants to communicate with us. But when we're stubborn mules, we don't respond to those kinds of words. And that's why we get so much thundering and and so on. The people of Israel are under the spell of idols. Okay, but now here we have though a contrast. Rather than thundering and shouting, God decided to do something very different in the book of Hosea to reach these people. Uh, Really remarkable. Imagine you're living in this time and this is the story that you're given about God. When the Lord first began speaking to Israel through Hosea, he said to him, go and marry a prostitute so that some of her children will be conceived in prostitution. And I put the verse here in in white and yellow so that you see the, the contrast. What God is doing is he's trying to illustrate Hosea's relationship with his prostitute is to parallel God's relationship with his people who have become prostitutes. God wanted to marry his people. They've left him. They've become prostitutes. Okay, so notice this will illustrate how Israel has acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. Okay, how does God feel about his prostitute people? This is what's so remarkable. My children, plead with your mother, though she is no longer a wife to me and I'm no longer her husband, plead with her to stop her adultery and prostitution. Okay, now going back and forth, we have God talking to his people. She would never acknowledge that I am the one who gave her the grain, the wine, the olive oil, and all the silver and gold that she used in the worship of Baal. The Lord said to me, go again and show your love for a woman who is committing adultery with a lover. Now, how does God interject to comment here? You must love her, notice, just as I still love the people of Israel, even though they turn to other gods and like to take offerings of raisins to idols. Hey, God still loves his people, even though they have become prostitutes. He still loves them. And so notice what Hosea did. So I paid 15 pieces of silver and seven bushes of barley to buy her. Now, what did he have to do? He had to go find her, right? You know, she's a prostitute. Where is she? I mean, in the worst part of town, right? And so we imagine Hosea searching with his money um, or his barley, trying to find his wife, looking through brothels, trying to find his wife. And uh, really, that's the story of the Old Testament. God is trying to buy his prostitute wife back. And do you think Hosea got a bad reputation by going into those neighborhoods, I'm sure he did. I mean, people wonder, what's he doing there? Do you think God has gotten a bad reputation by trying to win us back? Yeah, we have all, we're all these bothered by the flood and different stories. Uh, God seems very severe and vengeful. Uh, I mean, God has muddied his reputation by getting involved with the likes of you and I. Okay, but it would have been much easier for him just to say, uh, you know what, I'm just going to disconnect myself from planet Earth altogether. It's just too much trouble he took the risk of ruining his reputation, just like Hosea did. Okay, so God, as Paul would say in Romans, has shown us how much he loves us. It was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. So most famous verse of all, God so loved the world that he sent his only son. And the world includes everyone, bad people, the worst of us. So in the worst of our situation, God, out of his love, came Spent nine months in the womb, dead in a tomb eventually. I mean, it's really unbelievable. So I think the, the ultimate here, as we've said, is intimacy with God. God is described as wanting this marriage relationship. When we get to Ezekiel, I won't have time to read this, so maybe we'll just plug it in now. But so many ways God describes what he wants. This is Ezekiel 16. When you were born, no one cut your umbilical cord or washed you or rubbed you with salt or wrapped you in cloths. No one took enough pity on you to do any of these things for you. When you were born, no one loved me. No one loved you. You were thrown out in an open field. And then I passed by and saw you squirming in your own blood. You were covered with blood, but I wouldn't let you die. I made you grow like a healthy plant. You grew strong and tall and became a young woman. Your breasts were well formed and your hair had grown, but you were naked. As I passed by again, I saw that the time had come for you to fall in love. I covered your naked body with my coat and promised to love you. Yes, I made a marriage covenant with you, and you became mine. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. The marriage relationship is again and again and again described as what God wants with us. So just think about your ideal marriage. I mean, that involves commitment, daily communication. Um, That's the marriage we experience here on this earth in an ideal way. And that is exactly what God wants to have with each and every one of us. Paul would say in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave his life for it. Men ought to love their wives just as they love their own bodies. As the scripture says, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and unite with his wife and the two will become one. There is a deep secret truth revealed in this scripture, a deep secret truth, which I understand as applying to Christ and the church. So what Paul is saying here is, The husband and wife become married, they become one. That's the same deep secret truth in our relationship with God. We become married to God, in a sense, and we become one. Jesus very much described it that way, that uh, as he is in the Father, we are to be in him that we may be one. So, uh, and of course, God comes back, Revelation 21, and what are we described as? Like a bride dressed to meet her husband. to consummate the marriage. These are all word pictures here, but it's in language that we can understand based on the experience that we have here on this earth. So anyway, it is supposed to be, however intimate you can make it in a real marriage relationship, it is supposed to be like that with God. Now, I thought about uh, another marriage, and of course, maybe Lady Di and Prince Charles started out happily married. I don't really know. But, of course, over time, it became pretty obvious that they weren't happy together. But yet they were still showing up at functions. Uh, They had a public marriage, or some people have called it a show marriage. Okay, they weren't intimate. They weren't together at all towards the end, but they would show up at public uh, events together. It was a show marriage. Okay, now, sadly, this is the experience that many Christians have with God, a show marriage. And a show marriage would be, well, we show up at a public event church once in a while, and we think about God maybe for a little bit for that short period of time, but there's nothing in between. I mean, there's no prayer, there's no time really spent communicating with God, as you would spend communicating with your wife. That's a show uh, marriage with God. And so what I think is wonderful is that God wants much, much more than that. And I think that that much, much more is inc- incredibly satisfying that is the eternal life experience it 's not a boring drab uh, got to drag myself out of bed thirty minutes early to spend with bed to, to spend with God, even though you know it 's the last thing in the world you want to do it. It becomes a wonderful thing, not like uh, Lady Di and Prince charles i don 't know if some of you have read this book, The Screwtape Letters by c s lewis it 's uh, one of the best books i've ever read, and basically it is describing. Uh, one devil giving advice to another devil on how to tempt humans, how the best way to tempt humans would be. And it's, it's so insightful into how we are. And in one of these letters, he described, you know, it seems like God really loves these humans. I mean, it's unthinkable, but it just seems like he, he must love them. And then he recants here in the next letter. And the reason I'm reading this is I think this kind of love is completely incomprehensible to Satan, and to people who have completely rejected this. So the truth is, again, this one devil talking. The truth is I slipped by mere carelessness into saying that the enemy, and that's God, really loves the humans. That, of course, is an impossibility. He is one being. They are distinct from him. Their good cannot be his. All his talk about love must be a disguise for something else. He must have some real motive for creating them and taking so much trouble about them. The reason one comes to talk as if he really had this impossible love is our utter failure to out that real motive. What does he stand to make out of them? That is the insoluble question. His throne depends on the secret. Members of his faction have frequently admitted that if we, the devils, ever we came to understand what he means by love, that the war would be over and we should re-enter heaven. And there lies the great task. We know that he cannot really love. Nobody can, it doesn't make sense. If we could only find out what he is really up to, hypothesis after hypothesis has been tried and still we can't find out. Yet we must never lose hope. More and more complicated theories, fuller and fuller collections of data, richer rewards for researchers who make progress, more and more terrible punishments for those who fail. All this pursued and accelerated to the very end of time cannot surely fail to succeed. It's a funny book, Um, but the point here is I mean, just to comprehend the love that God has for us, I don't think you could overstate it. The love that a parent has for its child, husband, wife, it's that intense. It's much, much more intense than we can possibly imagine, but it's true. Unexplainably, it is true. Okay, and so ultimately, of course, if we have any doubts that God left his throne, again, nine months in the womb, that's just the most unbelievable thing to me. First night in a manger, and what's his motive? It's love. That's it. That doesn't work in Hosea. So God resorts to hard language. These are God's words. I will attack the people of Israel and Judah like a lion. I myself will tear them to pieces and then leave them. When I drag them off, no one will be able to save them. So we question, how does God attack like a lion? Never stop reading. It always becomes clear. I will abandon my people. There's no break in between. We're just reading right on. For clarification, I will abandon my people until they have suffered enough for their sins and come looking for me. Perhaps in their suffering, they will try to find me. And of course, as a parent, sometimes it is the most loving thing to do to abandon your adult children when that's the only thing that works. But if we really want to see, I mean, if the Old Testament climaxes here to how does God treat his rebellious children, uh, this is the most clear verse of all the very end of Hosea. God describes the whole thing in a nutshell. When Israel was a child, I loved him as a son, and I called my son out of Egypt. But the more I called to him, the more he rebelled, offered sacrifices to the images of Baal, and burned incense to idols. It was I who taught Israel how to walk, leading him along by the hand. But he doesn't know or even care that it was I who took care of him. I led Israel along with my ropes of kindness and love. I lifted the yoke from his neck, and I myself stooped to feed him. But since my people refuse to return to me, they will go back to Egypt and will be forced to serve Assyria. War will swirl through their cities. Their enemies will crash through their gates and destroy them, trapping them in their own evil plans. For my people are determined to desert me. They call me the Most High, but they don't truly honor me. Oh, how can I give you up, Israel? How can I let you go? how can I destroy you like Adma and Zeboam? My heart is torn within me and my compassion overflows. So how does God feel even about the the worst of us who've rebelled? I mean, do you hear the tears in God's voice here? How can I give you up? How can I let you go? Very interesting. What did Jesus say on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you given me up? Why have you let me go, handed me over? It's the same um, kind of language here. So... Any idea of God here as angry with his rebellious children, very clearly, that's, that's not his attitude. Well, if I could just maybe say in conclusion, these books all have a messianic passage. It seems like almost all of them. And both in Micah and Hosea, we have hope for the future. Micah 5. The Lord says, Bethlehem, you are one of the smallest towns in Judah, but out of you I will bring a ruler for Israel whose family line goes back to ancient times. And isn't this what was quoted when they were looking and asking, where is the Messiah to be born? Bethlehem. So the Lord will abandon his people to their enemies until the woman who is to give birth has her son. Then those Israelites who are in exile will be reunited with their own people. Now that never happened. So what's God talking about here? When he comes, he will rule his people with the strength that comes from the Lord. And with the majesty of the Lord God himself, his people will live in safety because people all over the earth will acknowledge his greatness and he will bring peace. And I think just to say, who is this talking about? We understand the death of Jesus in terms of bringing peace. Colossians 1, for God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Jesus died to make peace throughout the entire universe. We have to explain what that means, but it's coming right back to this passage in Micah. He came to bring peace. There was war in heaven, now there's peace. Okay, in the messianic passage here in Hosea, chapter 1, the day is coming when he will say to them, you are the children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will be reunited. They will choose for themselves a single leader. And once again, they will grow and prosper in their land. And my question is, Judah, I mean, there's so many passages here about Israel coming back together again. And is this just talking about uh, the Jews all coming together again in end times? What is this referring to? And I think there's uh, describing something. um, Well, let me just read the passage and see if you might agree with this. Paul would say, after all, who's a real Jew? Is it not the man who is a Jew on the outside, whose circumcision is a physical thing? Rather, the real Jew is the person who's a Jew on the inside, that is, whose heart has been circumcised. And this is the work of God's Spirit, not of the written law. So Jesus came to do something not external to our bodies. He came to write the law of love, self-sacrificial love on our hearts and minds, that is the real Jew. So I would take these passages that point again to Israel and Israel and things that would happen as ultimately talking to Israel, Jews, who would respond to Jesus Christ. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you so much that um, this uh, incredible intimacy that you describe, even in the Old Testament, where we sometimes become confused at your hard words, but yet how can we can be confused after listening to the story of Hosea, and that even though we have left you and become prostitutes, that your love remains. Thank you so much for your great faithfulness. Help us to respond to the kind of person you are and to enter into this closer intimacy and friendship with you. Amen.